Everybody, welcome to the seventh episode of our AE War Report on the Russo-Ukrainian War. This is actually the second part of our year anniversary special that I did with Northern Provisions. He joins us again today. This podcast, along with all of our other podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions LLC. Also, check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, check out the Freelancers. That's a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyzeeducate, or you could also support us on ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyzeeducate. Really hope you guys enjoy this episode. We'll head right into it. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Northern Provisions. Northern, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for being here. As I was saying in the... uh, in the intro, this is part two of our sort of uh, one-year anniversary special on the invasion of Ukraine. It's uh, we're recording this March fifteenth, so it's uh, about about twelve months and some change since the invasion happened. And we ended off the last episode talking about phase one of the invasion. And if you haven't listened to part one, you should go back and listen to it before you listen to this. But just a quick recap. Phase one ends with Russian forces pulling out of northern Ukraine, uh, specifically in Kiev, the the capital and surrounding areas, as well as uh, Sumy and Cherniv, also in the north. And that's around early April. So then we immediately move into phase two. Phase two, we have fighting shifting to the fronts in the south and the east. You got a key event, which is the siege of Mariupol. That's still going on, and that goes all the way until late May. And at that point, it is the bloodiest battle in the war. At that point, again, we'll we'll change it up a little bit as we uh, move on. But for for almost three months, I mean, it's just brutal street by street fighting, right? People are dying left and right. Civilians can't get out of the city because it's completely surrounded by the Russians. And it's it's easily some of the worst urban fighting seen since World War II, definitely. Um, you also have the sinking of the Moskva. That is the guided missile cruiser that was the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet that was sunk by a couple uh, Neptune missiles, I believe they're called, anti-ship missiles. You also had the beginning of the Battle of the Donbass in mid-April. That is a large Russian offensive to capture all of Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast. That is actually still ongoing. And although Russia does end up capturing 100% of Luhansk for a little bit, they lose some settlements to Ukraine. uh, But at this point, they still control well over 90% of the region. After Luhansk is captured, Russian troops in the east generally take an operational pause. This is before general general mobilization goes into effect, right? So they're still working with their their pre-invasion force, and these guys are absolutely exhausted. 
they've been fighting nonstop for months and it's it's just been a grind day by day and yeah they they have to take an operational pause to really rest and refit and just figure out where to go from there right some small assaults are still going on but but for the most part the force is really depleted you also have heavy fighting in Kherson Oblast and uh, Mykolaiv in the south that's pretty much a stalemate at this point. Not a lot of uh, moving is going on. It's just defensive lines attacking each other. You also have officials from Russian-occupied regions, specifically in Kherson. They say that uh, they want a request to be annexed by Russia in the future. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Russia also begins standing up volunteer battalions to supplement their casualties. Again, we talked about the force, the invasion force, really being depleted. All the regions in Russia, I think they have 80... 85 regions, I want to say, they all stand up volunteer battalions. And a lot of these guys are veterans, and a lot of them are older. I mean, you're talking guys, some guys in their 30s, guys, in, you know, from their 40s to 60s, right? These are not, uh, these are not like top of the line troops that you would want. But this is what Russia does to supplement their force before they go into general mobilization. And also, in uh, phase two, a lot of Western military equipment starts really entering on the front lines, specifically HIMARS, donated from us. For those that don't know, HIMARS is like a rocket artillery system. It's top of the line, made by us, and that starts getting fielded, and it really starts targeting Russian ammunition dumps and all that stuff. So I think um, during this time, the siege of Mariupol is still ongoing as well, correct? It I is, yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> that... You kind of prefaced this before, but that was some of the worst fighting I think we've probably seen in terms of urban fighting uh, at that time, at least. Um, the stuff coming out of Mariupol was insane, and I think that was a predominantly Chechen spearheaded mission, if I'm not mistaken on that. I know they, they did bring in the Chechens a little bit. You also had a lot of Russian naval infantry. Uh, you know, a lot of people on the left like to call them Marines, you know, just because they're naval infantry. Right. Um, you also have a lot of guys from the Donetsk People's Republic, right? Keep in mind, this is, this is before Donetsk is annexed by Russia. So the DPR is de facto a, an independent country. Right, even though they still operate as part of the Russian command structure, they're they're their own force. And Mariupol is part of Donetsk, right? So they they obviously want to take this city uh, for their, you know, quote unquote, independent country. You also have some guys from uh, Luhansk People's Republic. Luhansk is is kind of in the same boat in Donetsk as uh, they're a de facto independent country, even though they are still part of the overall Russian command structure. And there was some. Uh, some issues uh, during the siege of Mariupol because these guys from the LPR, the Luhansk uh, People's Republic, they were fighting in Donetsk when really they that wasn't uh, their purpose. You know, they want to take up all of Luhansk and call it a day. That's why they got into the war. They didn't go to fight anywhere else. So there were some issues with that, but uh, nothing, nothing really became of it. It was really just units kind of griping a little bit and giving a little bit of pushback but it, it wasn't a major issue for them 
So I think what's interesting about this um, is we really saw kind of what I would say is maybe a shifting of the mentality of the Russian armed forces in terms of, you know, I think that that phase one, right, was kind of a vibe check for them, for lack of better terms. And phase two, I think, is when they really started to kind of reconsider maybe the long-term game plan in terms of like what they can actually take, what they can actually hold on to. Because phase two is really where we started seeing a lot of, you know, fluidity in terms of who's controlling what area and how much territory. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, going back to phase one, the, it's clear the main objective is to take Kiev, right? Because that's that's the capital. You want to overthrow Zelensky's government. You want to install... You want to install your own pro-Russian president, right? You take over the capital. That's how you do it. That's how anybody would do it. That's how we did it in Baghdad, right? So that's pretty clearly the objective. And the Donbass was uh, important to Russia, right? Because that was kind of their their catalyst for justifying the invasion. Was there going to liberate the Russian speakers of the Donbass who you know, according to Russia, been subjected to genocide for the eight years prior. And once phase two happens, once once the Russians leave Kiev and phase two happens, then, like you said, you definitely have a shifting of objectives, right? Russia, at this point, cannot make another push on Kiev. There's just no way in hell. Um, they lost, you know, too many troops, too much equipment in that drive, and... At this point, they have to keep up their other theaters, right? They got to keep up the east and the south. And the Donbass, it has this, um, I guess, political and cultural significance to it as far as the invasion goes. So that that's why you see that being the main objective. Not only that, but it's also just more realistic, right? You, you got fronts, again, in phase one, you got fronts in the north, east, and south. You have not even 200,000 troops trying to take on all this. Ukraine is not a small country. Sure, it's smaller than Russia, but it's a pretty sizable country, and you're going to need a lot of troops to take that. And if you're trying to handle multiple fronts all at once, it could get tricky if you don't do it right. And Russia did not do it right. So that's why you see them shifting objectives and, and kind of, I guess, becoming more realistic in their goals, at least short term. Yep, absolutely. And um, it seems like, well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I'll, I'll wait to that. So from from the perspective of like the South, right, you really had like a lot of fighting around Izium as well going on. That was, you know, prior obviously to the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, but I think you already kind of hit on it. Like fighting in the East was really much more of like a stalemate. And I think, in a way, since then, we've really seen that change because in phase two, a lot of the fighting in the East was kind of at like more of a stalemate with a lot of the gains being made in the North and then the South, whereas now it seems like it's almost swapped and there's less fighting in the North and South where there's more of a stalemate, lines drawn, and in the East is where everyone's trying to make movement. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this point at this point, going to the south, Russia's got Kherson, uh, the city, which is west of the uh, Dnieper River. 
and they don't go too much farther than that. They really they try to break into Mikulayev, which is uh, to the northwest, I want to say, of Kherson. They try to break into there, but didn't really get anywhere. Advanced units kind of made it into the city, but that was really it. Ukraine really beat them back. And, and so that's really how you get a stalemate there. Neither side is really making advances. There's some, there's some small Ukrainian counteroffensives in the area. Um, but at this point, Russia's really digging in because they're expecting a big Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, in Kherson in the coming months, right? And that did that did end up happening um, eventually. But I mean, it was you know it was heavily reported on here in the U.S. Uh, you, the Ukrainian government was like very open about their plans to launch this large counteroffensive in Kherson, right? It's a it's a very uh, strategic port city. So it makes sense why they would really shift their focus to taking it. But but that is why you get the stalemate. Russia's digging in at this point. They're not on the offensive. They're on the defensive. And that's why you see the lines in the south really not moving that much. Going to the east, again, that's their objective as a Donbass, right? They really pushed in Luhansk. As I was saying earlier, they were, they were able to take the entire region uh, for a little bit. And they were also coming down from Kharkiv. Uh, they were coming down towards uh, the southern end of Kharkiv to really use that as a supporting axis to further push on the Donbass. And that, that's really where you see the most advances and uh, really the heaviest fighting in Phase 2. Also, in Phase 2, outside of Ukraine, we see some interesting things start developing in Transnistria. That's when we have the what I would call some sort of sabotage attack on the I believe it was the Gregoriopol transmitters is like radio station um got attacked by there's an explosive multiple explosive devices that were placed that damaged it um if I remember correctly there was also a few attacks at the Tiraspol airport and then at a, I think, state security building as well, mm -hmm. was also damaged by an RPG-18. Um, so there are these little insider attacks in Transnistria. And I say insider attacks because um, a lot of the evidence so far points to uh, essentially this being some sort of like Russian false flag that they were trying to carry out. Um to kind of further destabilize and raise tensions. But nonetheless, nobody has been confirmed to be the perpetrators here. But this kind of made tensions between Moldova and Transnistria even worse. Uh, for those who don't know, Transnistria is the breakaway region of Moldova that they had a earlier conflict. And essentially what happened is now there are Russian, you know, peacekeepers there, and Transnistria kind of operates as a pro-Russian part of Moldova, and tensions there became really weird because of these uh, attacks. It couldn't be explained, and we're kind of starting to see some tensions rise again in that region due to the Moldovan protests that are ongoing, as well as. There were reports that Ukrainian troops were near Transnistria and uh, Ukrainian officials were saying that 
Russia was trying to plant some sort of false flag to essentially draw in Transnistria. So not necessarily specifically uh, in Ukraine, but still related to the Russo-Ukrainian war and uh, still relevant now as we continue to see those tensions get worse. Yeah, Transnistria is, is a very weird case. And, um, you know, me and you did an episode with Colin Mayfield. I still need to get that out, man. Like, it, I've just been dragging on it for a while. I need to get around to um, editing it. Now that I'm done with midterms, I should be able to get to that, actually, and just finally get it pushed out because I know I've been dragging on it. But we talk about Colin. Uh, we talk about Transnistria with Colin for a bit because he actually took a trip there to – just sort of get a feel for the place, right? Uh, Transnistria is very, very pro-Russian. I mean, the Russians really saved the region during their civil war in the in the 90s with Moldova. You know, you got Russian forces intervening on Transnistria's behalf, and that's really what secures their status as a de facto nation today. Uh, they're, I mean, very, like, Soviet in a sense. It's weird, you know, their their economy has... It's very like reminiscent of the Soviet economy as well as, you know, their political class. Um, they keep a lot of like Soviet era, like visuals and traditions and stuff like that. It's just such a weird, weird case. But it has come into focus in the past year a few times. It's really not clear what exactly Russia wants to do with that because they have a very small force there i can't remember the exact number but it's between 1500 and 3000 guys right so it's you know not not much you could really do anything with it's right on the border with ukraine and we have had some pretty clear false flag attacks in transnistria throughout the course of the invasion right but nothing really becomes of it you know it makes headlines a little bit and people kind of speculate as to whether uh, Russia will take action on Transnistria's behalf and either make a move against Moldova or make a move against Ukraine from Transnistria. Because they have tried to blame some of these attacks on both Moldova and Ukraine in the past. But it, it doesn't seem like anything's really going to come up that, you know, it has been in the headlines again recently, as you pointed out Um there was more speculation that Russia was going to take action on Ukraine from Transnistria using their quote-unquote peacekeeping force there. That led Ukraine to move some of those troops, some of their troops along the border. But again, nothing really happened with it, and I don't think it will. It will kind of just be a, I don't know, just a, a way to distract, I guess, distract both Ukraine and Moldova from what else Russia has going on in the area. Right. Uh, also, in phase two was the death of the first American who was fighting in Ukraine. Um, my understanding is that the first one, at least documented, that was killed fighting is a prior Marine by the name of Willie Joseph Cancel. Mm -hmm. His death was reported on... April 28th, um, however, I believe he actually died a few days prior to that. Um, Willie Joseph Cancel was working essentially as a 
private military contractor. Um, I believe the company was called. Damn, I can't remember actually, but some working with some sort of PMC out there. Uh, essentially, when he was killed. So I don't know if they ever got his body back or not, but that was the first American to be documented as being killed. Yeah, and unfortunately, we've had we've had a few more uh, Americans killed. I think I mean I think we're probably past ten at this point. I can't remember the exact number, but a lot of foreigners went over to Ukraine to fight. Most of them volunteered as part of the the foreign legion, right? This new unit that was stood up to accept foreign volunteers, um, and they've they've been in the fight a lot since the invasion began i've i've actually been critical of ukraine's just use of the foreign legion because i think they rely on them way too much they're maybe not even a rely because they're a valuable resource in my opinion these guys many of them are veterans some of them have combat experience at the very least they know how to they know how to operate in a a westernized military they know how to use western equipment which ukraine is getting a lot of and that's great because these guys don't require additional training that a ukrainian soldier would right in my opinion they're a valuable resource and i think me and you touched on this a little bit but um they're they're not utilizing them in a smart way in my opinion and we'll get on that later when we talk about bakhmut but yeah these these guys have taken a lot of casualties um and i, I don't think they've been used the best way and there's probably been some needless deaths, unfortunately. Yeah, I definitely think they're getting... My understanding is that there's a good amount of them actually in uh, Bakhmut fighting right now. And that is kind of like a combat multiplier when you have these guys with prior experience. Um, not sure it's necessarily like the smartest thing to be using them trying to hold Bakhmut given the circumstances, but, you know, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, it's kind of a lost cause at this point. And I know we'll touch on that later, but that is, that's like the big focal point of the war right now is Bakhmut. So moving on to phase three, this really begins in early September and it starts with this massive Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kharkiv Oblast. That is a, sort of the northeast of Ukraine, right along the border with Russia. And this counteroffensive came as a surprise to some people. Um, Ukraine was building up a force in the area shortly before this began. Some people were paying attention to it. Some weren't. Admittedly, I wasn't. This came as a surprise to me, too. But this rapid Ukrainian advance went up against a pretty bare-bones Russian force defending the region. And I mean, you really did not have a lot of Russians there. You had a couple a couple of BARS units. And for those that don't know what a BARS unit is, it's essentially a Russian reserve unit. For a long time, Russian reserves did not work like, a, say, a U.S. military reserve unit would. Reserve just meant somebody that was sort of living as a civilian and you could kind of be called up and immobilized at any given time, sort of how we would think of a, a drafty or maybe somebody who was in the IRR, you know, post-active service. And probably less than 10 years ago, Russia starts standing up these bars units 
which are sort of an equivalent to what we would think of as a, as a reserve unit here in the U.S., right? These guys kind of do, I don't, I don't know how long they trained or got together before the war, but, you know, in a Western unit, you do your weekend a month, a couple weeks during the summer, and that's really it. You're, you're a reserve unit, and that's what the bars are. So you had a couple of these units in Kharkiv during the counteroffensive. You also had some Russian National Guard units in the area, I think probably two to three companies, which is nothing. And keep in mind, the Russian National Guard is not like uh, the U.S. Army National Guard is, right? These guys are more more military policemen, which I guess in the U.S. Um, National Guard can be used in that sense as well, but the National Guard can also go on deployments, right? You had guard units deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan to serve as regular infantry. That's not how the Russian National Guard is supposed to work. These guys aren't supposed to deploy outside Russia, especially um, in a time when Russia is not officially at war. So these guys were basically being used as, you know, supplemental provisional infantry when they really shouldn't be. Um, and there wasn't a lot of them either. So that's why this Russian force in Kharkiv really just gets steamrolled out of nowhere. Yeah, with this, you know, with the counteroffensive, it really started making a lot of headlines and, and you know, there was kind of being touted as a victory. And I'm definitely not saying it's not, but I think it's important to note that the Russians were really kind of starting to pull out of areas they knew they wouldn't be able to hold in the winter or like logistically, it just wouldn't make sense for them to hold it. So although the Ukrainians were making gains and they were you know taking like tactical victories away on the battlefield with their counter offenses it's still like the russians were pulling out of some of these areas before the counter offenses would even get there so you know it's like how do you like how do you determine that like is that a strategic victory or not that's not for me to decide but i think it is important to kind of note that a lot of these areas that were retaken was after Russia kind of pulled out of those areas in mass because they realized they weren't going to hold them through the winter. Like it just wasn't uh, like Izium, I think was one. Like if you look at the map now, I, we've talked about this before. I think when you look at the map, it's literally like a crescent and it makes sense that it's a crescent because of the way it was before, Ru like Russian forces were kind of jutting out past like those lines and to be able to hold those through winter and, and everything else like, it just wasn't it, it wasn't really feasible yeah which is which is interesting because i think you mentioned excuse me uh is and you also have kupiansk those are both cities in kharkiv and they're actually very very strategically important right and we we talked about the russian force being bare bones i mean they just didn't they didn't have the guys to defend these areas and continue to push on the Donbass and hold areas in the south in the anticipation of Ukrainian counteroffensive all at the same time. Now, I think you could absolutely question their priorities because Kupiansk and Izium are absolutely areas that they should have diverted more resources to to hold, but they didn't. And like you said, because they didn't, they had to pull back a little bit and they couldn't hold these areas that they would need in the future. And Ukraine liberates these two cities, also liberates 
almost the entire border of Kharkiv and Russia. And again, talking about the bare bone, the bare bones force, excuse me, uh, Russia needs to supplement their forces. And these volunteer battalions aren't really doing it right. I mean, any any manpower is is welcome, but they need a lot more than this. And that's why on September 21st, Putin declares partial mobilization in Russia. And that means that hundreds of thousands of men are what we would see in the West is drafted into the Russian military for the duration of the war. I believe they probably conscripted, I'm sorry, not conscripted, mobilized about 300,000 guys. And this really beefs up their numbers. Um, and it probably saves Russia from losing a lot more ground in Kharkiv and in uh, Luhansk at this point, because those two regions border each other. And that's when we see Ukraine kind of take back a little bit of Luhansk Oblast, not a lot, but a little bit. Russia, as this counteroffensive is going on, are really just like rushing these mobilized personnel into place just so they could form some sort of defensive barrier against Ukrainian troops because during this counteroffensive, again, they lose they lose a lot of territory that they will come to need later. And they would have lost a lot more, really, had they not pushed these horribly trained and equipped guys into defensive positions. They're essentially bodies, right, to to soak up soak up the counteroffensive. Yep, absolutely. And also in, in the third phase, we saw the Crimean bridge attack. Um, I think they assumed the perpetrators were like Ukrainian SBU guys, uh, the security service of Ukraine. And that was one of the first attacks kind of on Crimea, Crimean territory uh, was, was essentially a car bomb truck bomb, if you will, that went off on the bridge, uh, damaged it at the time. I think it's back up and running now, uh, but that was kind of a big, it's kind of like a big propaganda victory in a way um, because they got to tout, like, you know, th this is the first of their attacks on Crimea, many more to come after that, um, many attempts as well. So that was kind of a, a propaganda victory for Ukraine was being able to damage that bridge so far in Russian territory. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this this bridge was completed after Russia annexed Crimea, right? So at, at the time when Russia was building this, it was a huge propaganda thing for them, right? Crimea is, you know, back united with Russia, and they have this huge, you know, beautiful bridge to connect the two. Um, and it was just this massive like infrastructure project and huge propaganda victory for them at the time. And now that Ukraine damages most of the bridge, it was still operational. I think there was like one lane left that was uh, able to be used, but they blew the hell out of most of it. Um, that was a huge propaganda victory for them. And the truck bomb they used actually came from the Russian side, right? So this thing like went through the checkpoints, uh, got scanned or, you know, whatever procedures the Russian guards used to let vehicles like enter the bridge. But 
yeah, there's been a lot of speculation as to how the SBU is actually able to pull this off. Because again, like that truck came from the Russian side of the bridge. So obviously they, they had their uh, work cut out for them. But yeah, it was a massive, massive propaganda victory for them when this happened. Right. And I believe this actually may have been in phase two, but around the same, you know, within a couple months distance of this event was also the car bombing and um man i'm trying to remember exactly where it was but i think it was actually moscow somewhere in moscow that uh oh, daria dugina. yeah dugina yeah the, the daughter of um essentially this like well-known russian nationalist uh alexander dugan so she was killed in a car bomb and these events are kind of pointing that Ukraine's reach isn't just in Ukraine, right? Like you mentioned, like the truck came from the Russian side. Um, Ukraine is now carrying out these kind of like inside attacks now in, in Russia, right? They've killed this girl with a car bomb. Like, so there are essentially like Ukrainian operators able to operate in Russian territory, which is also not good in terms of optics for how this war is playing out for them yeah yeah and um alexander dugan you know darius dad he's he is a well-known russian uh, like nationalist commentator right and and figure in the political sphere he wasn't a politician himself right but he uh he was definitely like involved in that sphere a lot of people in the west like to say that like he is the one that, you know, inspired Putin's beliefs and blah, 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 and all this stuff. That's not really true. This guy is like a lot more radical than Putin. And Putin really never gave this guy the time of day, right? But it was, uh, again, like another big event for Ukrainian operatives, I guess you could say. Again, like you were saying, this this lady was killed in Moscow, not not in the city proper, but in Moscow region close to the city. And it really highlighted the reach of Ukrainians intelligence services. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So phase three, I think, is a very interesting phase because that's when we start seeing those lines kind of get tighter and tighter and tighter. Um and everyone kind of really starts trying to dig in for the winner. Yeah, absolutely. And not good thing that you brought up the winner. That's really what phase three is, is it's a race to see how much territory each side can take before the winter begins, right? Russia wants to take as much territory in the east as they can. Uh, they aren't able really to get a whole lot. After they take Luhansk again, this, this operational pause really kind of ended their advances for the most part they took some bits of territory here and there during phase three but not a whole lot again just because the force is so depleted uh but ukraine on the other hand is as well trying to just race and get as much territory as they possibly can and while this is happening you have four regions occupied regions in ukraine herson zaporizhia donetsk and luhatsk they all formally request to be annexed by Russia. They hold referendums in all four regions, right? There's a lot of uh, 
a lot of claims that these referendums were bullshit, right? Which they they clearly were, right? Like armed men are going up to people's homes and saying, "Here, you have to you have to vote, and we're gonna sit here with our AKs and watch you while you vote." And so, you know, I guess I'll I'll let people uh, decide whether they think that's uh, legitimate or not, but. I have my own opinions on that. All four regions like overwhelmingly vote to be annexed by Russia, right? At least officially. Again, the legitimacy of the referendums, I'll let you all decide. But yeah. that's a pretty big step. I mean, Russia Russia had not, well, actually, no, they annexed Crimea. But besides that, they had not annexed uh, any territory, Donetsk or, or Luhansk, right? This This is a big step for them now once they annex all four of these regions because they're not they're not only saying that we're liberating these regions from ukrainian nazis or nationalists or whatever they're saying that these regions have historically been part of russia and they're coming back home yeah i think you know i don't know what what, what is your opinion you think the referendums are bullshit like the voting i do yeah i do I, I don't I don't doubt that there's some people in these regions that see themselves as closer to Russia and wanted to be part of Russia. I don't doubt that, but I do doubt that it was enough to legitimately vote in favor of being annexed by Russia, you know, free of free of Russian uh pressure, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't really. Buy once you that. once you have video, once you have videos of heavily armed soldiers, I mean, they use oddly enough, they use Chechens uh, for the most part in these referendums. I don't know why, but you got like Chechen soldiers walking up to people's homes with voting officials, heavily armed, body armor, AKs, and all that, saying, "Here, vote on this referendum. Or we're going to watch you while you vote," and that kind of just delegitimizes the referendums in my eyes immediately which is not a good look i mean imagine if we did that here in the u.s right right yeah and and that's one of those things where it's it's hard like you know the international community is for whatever it's worth is not going to respect these referendums you know yeah, yeah, and I mean that that brings up that brings up a a point where it's like what would the international community respect in that regard, right? Because you go back to Crimea in 2014, I I'm sure there there were some nefarious acts going on in those referendums like would Russia legitimately respect the people of Crimea saying, no, we don't want to be part of Russia. We want to be part of Ukraine. Would they legitimately respect that? No, because they took all the effort to deploy these forces to occupy the region. If right. if the Ukrainians in Crimea turn around and say, we don't want to be a part of Russia, we want to be a part of Ukraine, do you think the Russians are just going to turn around and go home? No, of course not. And if the roles were reversed, then Ukraine wouldn't do that either. So it makes you wonder, like, what what would we, what would we as in the West, respect as far as referendums go? Because there are a good amount of people in Crimea that saw themselves as Russian, and they voted to be a part of Russia, 
everybody no but but definitely a good amount right and i mean you could say hey man that's democracy right that's what we're all about in the west yeah, that's true we're fighting for democracy right well yeah it's not that simple because democracy is not uh in that case democracy is not aligning with our views and our goals and our yeah just just with what what we see is is right and just yeah which is you know at the end of the day like what's what's our opinion you know we're not the ones uh bleeding on the ground so why do really i mean but you know that's that's an age-old like what are we doing? What's our influence? What's our game plan? You know, what do we want out of this? We're obviously not doing this. You know, if anyone thinks that we're doing this out of like the goodness of our heart and we just were really trying to just like uphold Ukrainian democracy, I'm not trying to be a douchebag. We need to grow up. Um, there is, yeah, sorry, I you can cut that out if you, if you think that's too, uh, too harsh, but I, I think it just, you know, we're not we're not doing this like because we this is just like something we feel like is the is the nice thing to do. You know, this is nothing nothing about Ukrainian democracy and everything about like what we want out of it. Um and at the end of the day, Russia's doing something that they want to get what they want out of it. And it's gonna hit a point where we go, who wants it more? Um and we're kind of using, you know, opinion here, but I think the United States is, I don't think this is like a proxy war for Ukraine, but I think the United States is absolutely using it as an opportunity to do as much as they can. And like Ukraine may have to hit a point where they go, how much territory can we realistically hold? Um how can we can we make a deal? Can we make a peace deal where, you know, there's no more combat, but Russia gets this amount of slice of the pie? And are we as the United States going to support that initiative? Like, I don't know. But at the end of the day, like, we're not the ones bleeding on the ground. So it really comes down to what the Ukrainians want at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, as far as as far as the whole you know protecting democracy line goes, at like you said, sorry, but you know that's one hundred percent bullshit. Sorry, there's there's plenty of places around the world where the United States has actively interfered with a democracy and overthrown democratically elected governments, or at the very least turned a blind eye to authoritarian governments and dictatorships when it suits our needs. And that's that's the way it's always been. That's the way it's always going to be, right? International relations is just not that simple. We're going to protect freedom and democracy everywhere around the world, and that's that. No, that's not how it works. Look at Saudi Arabia, right? They're, they're some of our best friends in the Middle East. You think that's a democratic country? No, no. So don't buy this line that we're we're putting all this weight behind Ukraine to, to defend democracy and, and all that. Right.
do some people see it that way? Yeah, I'm sure some people actually see it that way. But is that how is that how our government sees it? And is that why we're so committed in our support of Ukraine? Absolutely not. Right. There are there are ulterior motives. And I think me and you touched on it. If it wasn't the last podcast, it was another podcast we did. I really can't remember. But there's a lot of people that support Ukraine as much as they do just because we are in their own words, giving Ukraine the tools they need to bleed the Russian army for us, right? That is that is actually a very popular opinion, especially among the blue checks on Twitter, right? The blue checks on Twitter, um, the mainstream media correspondents, and even government officials. People are very open about their that belief. It's a little bizarre that people would be so open about it, but that is an opinion that, that gets put out a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's like some of them fairly brazenly too. Like yeah. Sometimes it's just like, they're pretty brazen about like what, you know, what they want. And, um, I, never mind. I was going to, uh, yeah. Um, there's, there's people I know that have, have just like blatantly, uh, said exactly what they want. And, and I don't even think they realize that they're essentially saying they're willing to just like sacrifice Ukrainian men on the altar what they what they want and um it's really wild it's like very kind of american like detached from the real world mentality it really goes back to this conversation which you think what does what does winning look like and what does ukraine want out of this Right. At the end of the day, they really get a say in what an end to this war looks like. And we've seen multiple stories and reports in recent months uh, coming from, I mean, government officials of of other countries. Right. The former Israeli prime minister himself said that Russia and Ukraine wanted to work out a ceasefire deal. And we don't know any of the details of that deal. Right. But at the very least, both sides were open to it. And the U.S. said, no, because we're not going to support you if you do that. So they're the ones putting their putting their lives on the line. And here we are. You know. The U.S. has denied this wholeheartedly, but it's not just coming from Russian officials. It's coming from officials from third parties as well. Right. The U.S. has said no no it's not that simple you're not going to get a ceasefire this quick there there needs to be a little more fighting going on everybody's got their goals so yeah and again just you guys got to think about this when people say that we're supporting ukraine so much because we want to defend democracy that's complete bullshit we have our ulterior motives, right? Every country works in their own self-interest, including us and especially us. You got to keep that in mind. Yeah, it's just, you know, I mean, it, it's, you know, I, I don't, again, it's kind of like, I, I really don't, I really don't want to, like, I'm not trying to be a douchebag to some people, but it, it really is one of those things where, like, at some point, like, you have to grow up and realize that people 
not people, but nations don't do things like just out of the goodness of their heart. There, there has to be some sort of benefit to it, right? Like we are not giving Ukraine weapons, ammo, and equipment because we just love Ukrainian democracy. Um, nobody does shit like this. Like, like you, you said it perfectly, right? Like, then why are we not in Saudi Arabia? Because it has nothing to do with democracy. It has nothing to do with, like, women's rights, gay rights, fucking any of these ideas that, like, are pondered and pushed for a quote-unquote liberal democracy. Like, nobody gives a fuck about that. At least in the Pentagon. I don't know, you know, every belief of every person in Ukraine, but I promise you no one in the American administration gives a flying fuck about that. And it's it's just it just shows I think it just kind of shows people's ignorance and like how quick they still. I think the thing that is so interesting to me is like after we were bullshitted for 20 years in the global war on terror by our own government. Right. Like, what are we doing there? What's the mission? What are we getting out of it? What's going on after we were lied to it every corner and turn? People are still so willing to swallow the first glass of Kool-Aid that, that that's produced by like, you know, fucking Hollywood and the White House. It, it it's like and I'm again, I'm like, I'm I'm not at all one of these like you know, the war in Ukraine is fake and all this other stuff. Like, no, it's a it's a very real war. And I, and I, and like personally, opinion wise, like I do believe in a sovereign Ukraine. Like I, I do think they should have that right. Um, but I also know my own government, right? So it's, it, they're just like, they're doing it for a reason. And nobody does things because it's the, or nations don't do things because it's like the altruistic thing to do. Maybe in terms of like humanitarian aid, right? Um, you know, even Turkey as an example, right? Everyone kind of sending like these specialists to help with the earthquake um, that killed thousands of people. Like that's altruistic. There's not like a lot you can personally gain from it other than like maybe building better relations. But in terms of war, like actual direct war, that's just not a thing, dude. It's not a thing. And honestly, probably wasn't even a thing in World War II, right? Like the most, what everyone considers the most historic good versus evil war, like Probably wasn't even that altruistic then either. So, yeah, yeah no, it, it absolutely wasn't right. I mean, you look at the lend lease we gave the Soviet Union, it's not because we love the Soviet Union or we love communists or whatever, right? I mean, we we're very clearly ideological adversaries, right? We hated each other, but they're holding off the Nazis, right? Not only that, but once they're done fighting the Nazis, they're going to help us fight Japan if we hadn't already defeated them. Right. On the other hand, why are the Soviets allying with us? We're capitalists. Right. We're we're the worst of the worst, but we're going to help them fight the Nazis. We're going to help them fight this invader that really had them on the ropes. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, there's always there's always motives. Again, countries work in their own self-interest. They do not do things for the most part out of the kindness of their hearts. And you guys should always look at really everything with a healthy amount of skepticism, right? You could absolutely take it too far, but take everything with a grain of salt. Yep, absolutely.
Anyway, sorry for kind of derailing that train. <laughs> it's, it's okay. I played into it a little bit. Right. So the big thing uh, with phase three, really the ending is Ukraine makes a lot of gains in Kherson Oblast, and it ends up with them taking the city. Russia retreats from the city. Um, there's really not even a fight in the city proper, and that's because Russia just has horrible supply lines going into Kherson because, again, looking at the city, it's on the western side of the Dnieper River. Um, and on the eastern side is where all of Russia's logistics are, right? And during this entire time, Ukraine has been launching HIMARS on bridges, destroying all the ways across the river. So Russia has to set up barges to basically supply the city on the other end of the river. Ukraine's been, you know, lobbing missiles at the barges and other supply points along the river and stuff like that. So it's really just an untenable position for the Russians, right? If they wanted to fight for the city, uh, it would end up being a siege just like Mariupol was. So there's really no point. And that's when phase three ends. Phase four, this is the phase we're in right now. And this begins, like I was saying, right after the liberation of Kherson. This is where we are today. This phase can mostly be described as a stalemate. And keep in mind, this is exactly what many people predicted, including us, because this is when the winter comes around. And also keep in mind that when the invasion began last February, it was at the tail end of winter. So the first three phases take place in warmer weather for the most part, and the conditions are just, uh, you know, much more suited for offensive actions. Both sides use the winter to rest and refit their units and prepare them for spring offensives. Ukraine is also creating a lot of new units in this time. And Russia's integrating those mobilized personnel, mobiques, as uh, some in the West like to call them. And we touched on that earlier, right? 300,000 guys. Now these guys are starting to get integrated into their units or getting training where they can. And both sides are really beefing up their forces. There are some places that have seen a lot of fighting during this time. Heavy fighting is going on uh, to the west and south of occupied Crimea in Luhansk Oblast. So both sides are seeking to gain the initiative in that area. You also have a lot of fighting near Adivka in central Donetsk Oblast. That whole sector of Donetsk has pretty much been a stalemate from the beginning of the invasion with very limited changes in territorial control. And lastly, you have Bakhmut and the surrounding areas. And even if you aren't paying attention to the war as much as we are, you probably heard of Bakhmut. That's a city in Donetsk Oblast. This battle has been going on for over seven months at this point, And I would say it's probably the bloodiest and fiercest battle of the war, even more so than Mariupol. Oh, by far, by far. And it's been a, I mean, everyone has called this um, essentially a meat grinder for months now uh and it has not gotten better in really any aspect um for a while there russia was primarily using its wagner forces to kind of break down those ukrainian lines and now they're being transitioned out with russian conventionals uh, although wagner is still a very prominent role there which has kind of plays into this other aspect of inner Russian political fighting, right? So the leader of Wagner has on multiple occasions kind of called out Russian military command as being, for lack of better terms, incompetent and not supplying their 
personnel with everything they need as they're making this front. They've also kind of accused the Russian military of essentially stealing thunder from Wagner. So using Wagner's accomplishments and achievements as, as their own. And what I know is really interesting is recently there was a video that came out of Wagner troops kind of entering the city and uh, posting up at one of the T-34 monuments, I think the T-34 monument there, and putting a Wagner flag over the Ukrainian flag instead of raising a Russian flag. I thought that was that was very interesting. Yeah, so you talked uh, you talked a little bit about sort of the political side to Wagner Group and their offensives going on in the east. Um, and I feel like to to talk about those, we should give a little bit of background. I don't actually know if we've talked about Wagner in depth on here, but for those that don't know, they're a Russian private military company. They're owned by a, a man named Yevgeny Prigozhin. And before the invasion, officially, they didn't exist. Prigozhin denied all ties to them, and the Russian government used them in areas around the world for purposes of plausible deniability. They've operated in plenty of countries that include Syria, Libya, other places in Africa, also Venezuela, just to name a few. Since the invasion, they've become official and they've played a pretty big role in the war, especially in uh, in the Donbass. And they've grown in size as well. They started recruiting from Russian prisons, offering pardons in exchange for a six-month contract for fighting in Ukraine. And... I mean, before they started recruiting for prisons, I think there are probably around 10,000 or so contractors. And once they start recruiting amongst convicts, they swell their ranks to about 50,000. So they're a pretty sizable force in the East. And Yevgeny Prigozhin, he's he's friends with Putin. He's known Putin for decades, right? I think they met each other when uh, Putin was in St. Petersburg, I think, in like the late 90s. I want to say, and Prigozhin owned a restaurant that Putin visited. And ever since then, they've, again, like known each other for decades. They're uh, close. And that's why you see Prigozhin sort of vying for influence with Putin against really like the conventional Russian military and their commanders. It's all this just weird political game to see who could produce the best results for Putin. It's incredibly odd. Yeah, and I mean, let's be honest, man. These six months, these six month contracts, these dudes aren't going to fucking survive it, and that's exactly why they get picked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've taken they've taken incredible amounts of casualties since then. There's been a few guys that have actually made it out the other end and survived their six months. And they do, they get their pardon, right? They get released in a Russian society and a second chance at life, but it is not a lot of them. Fuck no. Nope. I mean, um, I, you know, we've talked about this before. The the casualty assessments are hard to determine, like, what's real, what's not. But uh, I think we mentioned it maybe last time, like, if there's any assessment, casualty assessment that I do believe, it's probably the the casualty assessment of of Wagner Group and them taking. Uh man, what was it? I think, I think it was a it was like the majority of their force was either 
killed or wounded, um, like those initial like 50,000 numbers, like a lot of them were were uh, at the very least like wounded in action. Um, and there is like some evidence to back this up, you know, Russian officer diaries, um, actual like Ministry of Defense documents, like things backing up. Uh, there's a video of like I think like the graveyard dedicated to Wagner soldiers. Like there, there's evidence to back up like these guys are literally going through a fucking meat grinder. Yeah, not only that, but I mean they have their own cemeteries, right? And they, I mean, really, the graves just go on for rows and rows, and it really plays into just how how much of a meat grinder, like you were saying, the battle for Bakhmut has been. Again, this has been going on for over half a year. It's actually almost been eight months at this point. It's been over seven and a half. Um, and it's it's just insane to imagine the scale of this battle right now. Ukrainians are like heavily dug in to defend the city, right? And it's taken Russia so long to make progress in this area it's gotten to the point where where they'll just throw these wagner convicts in human wave attacks and it's something that we've seen in russian history before right this is not this is not unheard of as far as how the russians fight when the going gets tough right and these guys are expendable me and you were talking about it a little bit before we started recording but these guys are expendable they don't they don't value their lives as much as a would a conventional russian soldier it's a horrible thing to say but that's a reality of it yep no it sure is it really is and i just think like th- those dude those videos of the graveyard are pretty rough like you're looking at a lot of fucking body yeah yeah and you know people may be wondering why why is this battle in Bakhmut, why is this so crucial? Why has it been going on for so long? And you know, there's different there's different answers to that. I will say Russia needs to, at the very least, take or encircle and bypass this city. And the reason they need to do that is so they can set themselves up to further push on two cities. That's Kramatorsk and Slovyansk, also in Donetsk, right? Those two cities are crucial if Russia wants to capture the entire region. They absolutely have to take those two cities. And Bakhmut is kind of standing in the way, right? Now, why is Ukraine so hell-bent on defending it? That is a good question that I, I don't think I could answer at the very least. Because, again, this battle has gone on for eight months. And where we're standing right now makes no sense to me as to why Ukraine has been just so fervent in their defense of this city. And the reason I say that is because losing Bakhmut for Ukraine is not the end of the world, right? From what we could tell... At least a situation as of about a month ago, the defensive lines outside of the city were incredibly strong, right? Because once Russia takes Bakhmut, they're, they're going to keep moving on, right? Ukraine is anticipating that. Not only that, but the areas to the west of the city are also up on elevation. Bakhmut, in comparison to the areas that surround it, 
is is low ground, right? And it's not the best territory that you want to try and defend from. And like we've been saying, it's an absolute meat grinder. Have the Russians taken a lot of casualties? Yes, but so has Ukraine. Now, the casualty ratio does still favor Ukraine right now. The best estimate I've seen is it's about one Ukrainian for every two Russians. But they don't have to defend the city. And keep in mind, Ukraine right now is fighting with their best troops in the city for the most part. We're talking their top-of-the-line mechanized brigades and their foreign legion filled with Western volunteers, right? What is Russia fighting with? Wagner Group convicts. Guys that have very little training, and the reality of it is Russia doesn't really care about them. They're just bodies to throw at the meat grinder. So Ukraine is losing their top-of-the-line troops to convicts when they do not have to. To me, yeah, I hope. it makes no sense why why they will not pull back from the city. Where we're looking at right now, Russia has taken the northern flank of Bakhmut, and they've also taken the southern flank. It's it's very close to becoming a tiny little pocket for Ukraine. And at this point, they have two MSRs, main supply routes, from which they can leave. One of those is under very heavy threat from Russia, right? If they, if they lose those two MSRs, all they're left with are ASRs, alternate supply routes, which are dirt roads. They have two paved roads left. If they lose that, their only way out of the city is a bunch of dirt roads, which I personally would not want to be relegated to. No, and I think, I think even recently, I believe it was within a week ago, one of the uh, Ukrainian ground commanders there uh, even said that they started advising, you know, for whatever reason, there's still civilians there, a very, very small amount. But he made a statement that they had already begun advising the civilians that it wasn't safe to leave on those routes. They had to, they had to essentially flee the city on foot. So to your point, um, obviously that gives credence to what you just said, which is, you know, those supply routes are going to be a problem. The reason why they can't fucking leave in vehicles is because they're going to be a target for the Russian military. Um, so these, these locals have to leave on foot. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is they, Ukraine should have left that city a long time ago. In my opinion, I've been critical of their decision to try and hold the city, no matter what the cost, for at least a couple of months now, right? They could have left months back, and the situation would probably be better for them because they would have less casualties, and they would still have easily defendable ground. The longer they wait, the worse the situation is going to be for them. They're going to lose people for no reason. And it's to the point where Ukrainians on the front lines in the city realize this they understand the situation they're in and they do not need to be in that situation but the political class for some reason is just so stubborn in their unwillingness to give up any ground at all now i understand ukraine wants to take back 100 of the territory they've lost to russia in the past nine years i get it and leaving a city brings them further from that goal i get it but there's, you got to outweigh the risks because Bakhmut will fall. It will. I bet all my money on it. Is it's there a not, question? Oh, sorry. 
No, nah, you're good. I was just gonna say it's it's not looking good. I mean, I, I just um I just actually pulled up the interactive map now. It's put out by uh the ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, which their maps are pretty pretty spot on um in terms of accuracy and it looks like Russia may have actually gotten close to that they're pretty fucking close to that MSR you're talking about um looks like there may be like two yeah there's two paved roads it looks like they're closing in on one of those two very quickly I mean and aside from that when you kind of pull out and you look at where you can see Russian advances on the north and the south right like they're creating a pincer and um yeah I, I I don't know I, I you know even our even like defense officials have have like they don't want to criticize what Ukraine's doing but they've made certain statements that are like um you know you Ukraine is leading the fight in the way that they see best. Like they make these weird kind of neutral statements where you can tell they want to be critical of this decision, but they're not going to, um, they're not going to undermine the Ukrainian officials, but I agree with you. I, I, I think it's only a matter of time and it, it you know, it, I just, uh, maybe there's some grand plan here, right? Maybe there's like some sort of grand plan that we're not aware of. But this seems like a this seems like a mistake. It seems like you're it seems like they're going to lose a lot of fucking people. Um, if not dead and wounded, uh, they will be prisoners. So Yeah, exactly. And I mean something I actually should have mentioned earlier, Russia's actually taken the eastern part of the city, right? There's a river that runs through the city. Right. Russia's taken east of that river, right? So that's almost half the city gone right there. And I just brought up this map you're talking about. I mean, Russia's, their advance units, at the very least, are mere kilometers away from uh, this MSR. That's T0504. Or is that a nine? I don't know. I can't really read. But they're right there on this MSR. So that's, that's pretty much gone, right? Because they're right along that road. They've even claimed that they've passed it. Now, that hasn't been independently verified yet. But that leaves Ukraine with one MSR out of the city and, again, dirt roads. Other than that, and you were saying it's clear that Russia wants to create a pincer movement. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's what they've been doing from the beginning, right? It's it's always been clear. And Ukraine knows that. And they've tried to defend against it, but you can only defend for so long. Again, this has been going on for almost eight months. And it's very reminiscent, for me at least, of the battle for uh, Sverodonetsk. And Lysychotsk, those are two uh, two cities in Luhansk Oblast, right, that Russia pushed on hard. Severodonetsk is uh, to the east, so it was closer to Russia lines. And that battle went on for a long time as well. And that we're seeing a lot of the same mistakes that the Ukrainian command made because they were very stubborn to withdraw from that city. Lysychotsk. The other city I mentioned is literally right next to Sverodonetsk. The only difference is Lysychansk is up on elevation. It is a better defensible position, right? Not only that, but it's closer to Ukraine's supply lines. It it favors them 
much more than Sverodonetsk did, but for some reason the command did not want to leave that city until it was almost too late. They fought for that city for weeks using the Foreign Legion again. I talked about how I think they're being misused. That That is a huge example in my mind of them being misused because they were fighting a losing battle, right? The city ended up getting nearly surrounded. Russia was trying to make a pincer move and whatever troops were still alive in that city pulled out at the very last minute. And at which point they pulled out, they went to Lysychansk, but it was already too late. Russia was already moving on that city's flanks. And they stayed in that city for mere days before they had to withdraw, which was the better defensible position again. And to me, that's reminiscent of what we're seeing in Bakhmut. They're just stubborn to leave a losing battle, and it does not make any sense to me. Yeah, like I said, I hope there, I hope there's something going on that we don't know about. Maybe my only like saving grace is maybe they have been withdrawing troops and they just haven't announced it for like propaganda purposes or intelligence purposes and they've been like slowly taking guys out um but everything on the ground appears that there's still a lot of fighting going on so i uh i don't know we'll you know it's been this has been a fucking slow grind but i think we will see something happen probably in the next week to two weeks in terms of like if the city is taken or not yeah i mean from where from where i stand again you know i said it before but the city what it will be taken i get it it's war things could change overnight right war is very fluid but really unless a miracle happens russia is going to take the city and it's going to happen soon because they've already got the flanks. They've got the eastern half. All they need to do is push a little bit more. We'll see. We'll see what they do. We'll see if uh, if Ukraine pulls their, pulls their boys out before that pincer comes in. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you guys, that's really, that's really where the war is now. It's easily the heaviest fighting. Um of the war this this fourth phase and yeah i mean really what happens next kind of depends on whenever bakhmut falls honestly it's to the point where russian forces on the northern flank of the city have started to break off from the main force and they're actually moving towards slovyansk and kramatorsk those two cities that i mentioned right they've made some gains small gains but some um but those cities, those two cities are really the big prize for them. And it will be a difficult fight. But the more people Ukraine can have defending the route to those cities, the better. So they probably won't, but they should fully withdraw from Bakhmut like now to put themselves in a better position to defend the other cities at risk yep yep i agree 
But I think that's that's uh, I would agree with you as well that I think that's kind of where everything is right now, and we'll see how it looks in a week or two. Yeah, absolutely, and of course we'll uh, we'll keep you guys up to date. You know, if anything, if anything major happens, um, I will try and get these war reports out more regularly. You know, now that uh, school is winding down, now that I'm done with my midterms and all that, that'll give me some some more time to kind of prepare to do these podcasts and just keep you guys up to date. But again, that's really that's really where we are now. It's just a complete grind in the East. And besides that, not a whole lot else is going on. You still have some fighting in uh, other parts of Donetsk, uh, city of Volnadar and other surrounding areas but Bakhmut is is the war right now and everybody's kind of just watching that just waiting to see what's going to happen and we will too and as soon as we know you all will know oh well good stuff man yeah I think that's uh that's about all we got well appreciate everybody tuning in um as, as always, it's been a pleasure, and we look forward to having you guys back again. Yeah, uh, Thank you for listening to this, everybody. Again, we'll keep you guys up to date if anything happens, but uh, just stay tuned until then, and we hope you enjoy this podcast. Okay, everyone, I really uh, want to thank you all for listening to that podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, that was uh, part two of our year anniversary special of the invasion, so that actually concludes our special. Hopefully we'll be back with another war report soon. That really depends on uh, both of our schedules and then any developments that happen on the ground as well. But we will uh, always be keeping you guys up to date, whether it's through the podcast or our uh, various social media accounts. And again, I want to thank you for supporting this podcast overall, especially in the past year. You guys have really helped us grow and it does mean a lot to us. You could find it on your favorite podcast apps. That is Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Anchor Breaker, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. You could also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That's all one word. Find us on Telegram as well at Analyze and Educate. It's the and symbol, not and spelled out. Again, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. That is all we have for you guys. We will see you soon.